Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Kick, Push, Pivot. We are honored and blessed to have a new guest on today's show, Joel Thomas from Spin Global. Hello, Joel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Alex. How are you guys doing? Hello. We're doing great. We're doing great. Joel Thomas is the uh, founder of Spin Global, a disaster preparedness strategy firm that works all over the world on helping governments, both state, local, and businesses plan for things like COVID outbreaks, earthquakes, fires, as well as other things. So we'll be talking to Joel today about what he does for his clients and the people of the world. So Joel, why don't you tell us a little bit about Spin Global and what you guys do from a tactical perspective and a strategy perspective, then we'll jump into your backstory. Yeah, sure thing. So Spin Global uh, is a company that I started in 2015, and we're a public benefit corporation that exists to disrupt the impact of disasters from neighborhoods to nations. Our real motivation is compassion. Uh, A lot of people all over the world who are uh, suffering, physical, social, economic suffering caused by disasters, and we're tired of seeing the world and communities all over the world uh, be so reactive. So we're trying to flip the script and get ahead of that and disrupt the impact of disasters on people's lives and, and reduce risk and, and try to uh, help put people in a better position. I love that. Does that mean insurance or how exactly are you helping these people? Yeah, no. So uh, my father sold insurance for about 40 years, but that's not what we do. We, we do uh, a lot of types of things uh, in communities for um, for really for the private sector, for the government, for non-government organizations, and, and for individuals and families. Uh, the type of things that we, we do is we provide uh, planning and assessments and trainings and exercises, consulting services. Uh, we provide rapid response and recovery services. Basically, anything that falls under the universal umbrella of how can we make the community more resilient? How can we reduce risk? And how can we prepare for uh, respond to and recover from disasters. So think of us as a consulting firm uh, with with a, a suite of tools uh, in our tool belt to help provide strategic guidance uh, and expertise to communities and, and help them understand their risk and vulnerability and then figure out what to do about it. Interesting. And so that's like the, the businesses go through these natural disasters and then they contact you as a consultant or is it like, uh, like the city of Dublin or whatever would would contact you as a consultant. Yeah, all of the above. And, and unfortunately, it too often happens exactly that way. Usually people go through a disaster and then they think to make a phone call. Uh, we're trying to work to get ahead of the curve, recognizing that the frequency and intensity of disasters is, is growing. All the data, all the, all the science in every domain uh, is showing upward trajectories. And the bottom line is even if there was not as much uh, uh, if, if disasters weren't increasing in frequency and intensity, the very fact that we have more people and more infrastructure on the planet than ever before, and that's growing exponentially, that intersects with these natural hazards. 
And so the reality is disasters are going to happen and we need to be prepared for them. And the more and more we grow and evolve on the planet, uh, we, we should come to expect this as a norm. So yeah, oftentimes people don't think about it until after the fact. There's all sorts of priorities that people have putting, you know, um, food on the table, going to kids' sport games, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and usually thinking about risk, uh, insurance, you know, disaster preparedness is pretty much near the bottom of the list. Uh, but what we're trying to do is help people realize that, look, it, it's worthwhile to spend time now. You're going to save so much uh, for your family and for your community, for your business. If you just spend a little bit of time on the front end planning, training, coming up with how we're going to handle uh, different scenarios and figure out what you can do to actually reduce your risk exposure. For a business, that can mean keeping your doors open or opening more quickly than the business down the street, which it all comes down to cash flow and being able to, you know, be be uh, operational and keep people employed. So, yeah, we work with governments at the city level, with states, with national governments and, and countries all over the world. In fact, uh, since 2015, we've been in 20 countries uh, and work wow. with uh, multilateral organizations, uh, with the NATO, United Nations, World Bank. Uh, and, and a bunch of others. Uh, and we do a lot of work with the United States Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, uh, particularly in this season of disruption. COVID's on everybody's minds. We've been very involved uh, in supporting response efforts and recovery efforts. Last year, to 20 presidentially declared disasters, including, notwithstanding, uh, COVID uh, in, in all the states. And so we, we do a lot of, a lot of work and, and the money tends to flow to response to recovery, but big things are changing in the industry. More money's flowing into preparedness and mitigation because people are finally getting the idea, holy, holy moly, <laughs> we're spending trillions in economic losses and, and, and by not being prepared. How many billions could we have spent to avert a few trillion? When you start talking those numbers, people start paying attention. And that's where we're at. That's our moment. And, and my business exists to sit in that moment and help people navigate the way forward and figure out how to, how to do this. Sure. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. How does someone get into something like that? How does, how did you wind up doing this? Yeah. You know, it's a funny story. Everybody in in the industry I work in has a different story there. You know, I, I work in um, primarily, we work by the way, with people from all different industries from um, emergency management and homeland security, which is where a lot of the sort of funding and program guidance and efforts come from nationally on this topic, to working with schools and healthcare and businesses, industry, retail, uh, communications, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a whole community issue. You can't, disasters don't discriminate, right? So we don't either. We try to help and work with everybody. Um, I got into this as a volunteer. I started out uh, almost 20 years ago, my wife and I traveled the world to about 20 countries on an around-the-world trip. Uh, I actually had a business degree with a nonprofit management uh, emphasis, and I thought I was going to go run an organization in the developing world and, and work to try to save humanity. And after working all over the world with about 35 organizations in 20 countries, I came to two conclusions. One was I didn't want to do that because everybody I saw doing that um, – was burnt out, under-resourced, and disillusioned and hated their lives after two years. I say that affectionately because I have a lot of friends who do it and I admire them. Uh, but, and, and secondly... Uh, it's good for you, though. Yeah, it's good for me. And second, I, I, I came to a different conclusion. I, I was like, man, what if you took the passion and innovation of the private sector and volunteers and combine that with the resources of government? 
Like we can actually make a change. And I remember sitting in Sudan uh, with post-conflict refugees, you know, uh, opening a medical clinic. And I remember being in, in Thailand uh, with after the tsunami uh, in, in Kaulak and in Indonesia, Bata uh, Acha, Indonesia. And I remember thinking these thoughts and, and being like, man, I, I really, the people who are doing what I wanted to do had uh, about 10 more years experience and a master's degree. So I basically made up my mind, I need to get a master's degree and 10 more years experience and then run a company someday to try to try to do something here. But I came at this, I came at this with a background in business and nonprofit mm-hmm. management. And then I got a master's in public administration, international development, disaster relief, focus at, at GW, George Washington University. But most of the people in my industry aren't trained in business. They get trained as emergency managers or military and they convert over or some other discipline like paramedic, fire, or even, you know, sometimes law enforcement. And there's a lot of National Guard. A lot of people in the industry sort of inside the insider path is either that or some sort of political appointment. Uh, I, I am not the insider. I came I came as a businessman looking at there's a problem in the world. It's causing a lot of suffering. We've got to do something about it. It's costing too much. And again, moved by compassion, you know, uh, in my travels all over the world and seeing people suffer abject poverty and and literally their lives be upended. They don't have the social uh, constructs that we have in in the U.S. even uh, where, you know, a disaster happens. It can literally wipe out a generation of wealth. You know, we're seeing that right now again, but but there's areas of the world where there's far more vulnerability to that. So I was motivated to make a difference and and, and make a change. That's amazing. Yeah, Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Joel, because, you know, before I came into what I'm doing now, I worked in a nonprofit for some time. And I totally experienced what you're talking about, the burnout, the under-resourcing. So being able to come at it from the angle that you are with the resourcing and the business acumen, I think that's where you see... The change, right? The long-term, the long-term pivot to something that that will make a difference in the world. That's really, really interesting. So, speaking of 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 challenges, what are some of the biggest obstacles you've seen? You had that passion and that that interest from a young age while you're traveling the world with your wife, but you weren't there yet. You started building your business, getting that master's degree, you know, setting up your 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 kind of team. What are some of the obstacles you faced along the way? Gosh, uh, lots of obstacles. Uh, first, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in the risk management business and I'm a little bit risk averse. So the whole idea of like launching off and starting a new business, obstacle number one. So I decided the perfect time to do that would be about six months after we had our fourth child. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> because nothing I'm a glutton for punishment, because I'm a glutton for punishment, and I've got nothing to lose. Uh, actually, the and I have to uh, uh, affectionately blame my wife. She's the one who told me to encourage me to do it. So it wasn't it wasn't just me being crazy. Kid. She's like, no, you got, no, yeah, no, no, that that's over. Uh, but <laughs> four uh, is a quiverful, and we're very happy with that. But I digress. We are. She encouraged me to to launch off. I, I'd wanted to do it for years, and so step number one was just honestly. Um, you know, uh, uh, just finding and building faith and courage to take steps out into sort of the wild west <laughs> that I'd never taken before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, you get in the journey of like, okay, I, you know, I took that leap. And then it's, you know, the, the world of government contracting, which is pr- principally where I got in the early years, especially a lion's share of the revenue. We do a lot with private sector now. Um, uh, but in the early days it was principally, um, government funding it's a long lead cycle 
And I'll be honest with you, the first uh, the first time when I uh, got a project, I was really grateful within the first month of starting my company to have a contract with a few task orders. I didn't get paid for almost four months. That's insane, right? Like, so the cash flow cycle, and I will say I'm so grateful because the government changed the rules that small businesses had to get paid after 15 days of submitting an invoice within my first year. Uh, of business. And that was a game changer. So cash flow, just, just figure out how to survive and live to fight another day and have a chance to see this dream become a reality. And so I'd say the early years, it's all about the hustle. You know, I had, I'd been in the industry for a long time. I had relationships. I, I felt like I understood problem sets, but they're sort of getting out there, um, creating your, your, your brand, uh, you know, I, defining sort of your business plan, all the basics that any startup uh, has to deal with. But I was surrounded by a great community of people, um, uh, you know, supporting me at every level. Mentors as part of a startup incubator, uh, worked with a lot of uh, partners that were wonderful. And, and that really that really helped. I, I definitely, um, there's an African proverb that I have on all my email signatures, and it says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But you want to go far, go together. And so that's been a principle that I've applied in every step of the journey is just taking the time and, and leaning on others. Uh, so early days is really just about like getting, getting a flight and then cash flow, And then, okay, immediately I realize, uh, you know, you get to a point as a consultant where it's like, okay, the only way I make money is if I do stuff. So how do I, how do, and, and, and then like, I have four kids, like I want to grow a business so other people can do stuff and I don't have to be responsible for everything. So the whole journey of how do I hire employees and bring that on? And a lot of that has to do with, okay, I have to create a company. I have to evolve from like a briefcase business to like, I've got a business that people want to join. And so, you know, developed a strategic plan to build a world-class company. And we've been doing that. Uh, and, and, and attracting great talent as a result. And so, you know, it's been a major focus is building a world-class company, looking at making the company the type of place that, that um, I'd, want it, I'd want to work at. So, yeah, that, that led to us ultimately becoming a public benefit corporation. And uh, benefit corporations have this high, very high self-imposed standard uh, to meet, and you sort of have to get at least 80 points on this 200-plus point scale. And, and we're over 200 points on that scale. We, we literally are doing almost everything we possibly can to maximize public benefit, to be a difference-making company, to be a place that adds value to our people. If we, can't, we can't save the world and, and not take care of our people. We take care of our people, um, and, and we take care of the world at the same time uh, through our work. And so, you know, that's where I'm at. I, we're five years old, a little bit more than five years old at this point, still figuring out how to grow the company. Uh, I'm thrilled uh, to have a fantastic team and a, and a, a vision and, and um, a, over 20-something clients at this point uh, at local uh, private sector, non-governmental sector, uh, um, local, state, federal, international clientele, um, you know, Fortune 500 companies, et cetera. So I'm just thrilled to be able to stand the chance to, to be where we are right now. Awesome. Joel, you mentioned that time um, at the beginning when you were taking months not getting paid. I think that's probably a pretty universal thing for uh, for entrepreneurs. When they start a business, they usually don't get paid for quite a while. Uh, maybe you can tell, give a little guidance to the listeners how you got through that, um, maybe some ways that you were able to hustle and find some other ways of, of getting income while you were setting up that business. 
Yeah, so my one of my biggest concerns when I started the company was cash flow because I worked in a, another small firm and I understood these realities. And so that, that was the biggest thing. So I spent time before I started launching sort of getting myself in a position. I had prepared mentally for the fact that the first three to six months are going to be pretty choppy. Okay. Um, just just so because... You, so you had money already from your previous ventures? Yeah, I, I had I had prepared to do that. I I uh, I don't like debt, and so I did not uh, take out any loans anywhere. I did eventually qualify for an emergency line of credit, um, you know, uh, th that I still have today. And uh, but but uh, for all intents and purposes, I've never had to use. Uh, so I I did have to in the early days scrape and uh, get by, uh, uh, but. I'd say to me, starting a business starts before you start the business <laughs> and it's some of the planning uh, yeah. and financial preparedness that goes into that. So, you know, it was a small operation. It was just me and my family. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, but but yeah, that was my approach. And I recognize that's not always uh, an option uh, for folks or, or that, you know, but anyways, that's that's where I found myself. No, I think that's important, though, for people, especially what you just said, planning the business before you start the business and making sure that you're not starting off in a bad place where you're racking up tons of debt and you're already kind of in the hole before you even get started. So I think that's an important bit. I'll say it's the difference between I got a lot of friends who jumped out and started businesses. It's the difference between those who actually built a company and those who were in business for a season. You know, make anybody can be, there's a lot of people, who, especially in the Washington DC area, briefcase consultants, you know, you can make a buck, you know, uh, and, and do what you need to do and have somebody else run the business. But I, I decided I, I actually want to build a company. I want to build a business. And so I, I very much had that thought at the outset. Some people are accidental CEOs. Um, I very much intended to, uh, go down the path that, that I'm on. And so I'd say if you intend to go down that path, it's worth waiting until you're really ready for it. And then when you think you're ready for it, Give yourself another minute, <laughs> uh, just just because uh, there ain't nothing like it. Once you're out in the deep blue sea, there ain't nothing like it. But I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's really interesting. Yeah, I like what you said there, Joel. About if you're thinking about it, give yourself a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I think some some entrepreneurs can do this. They can wing it and they can get in there and they're able to make things happen. Others crash and burn. Have to crash and burn a couple of times. To get yeah. that successful business going, but it sounds like for you it was it was more thoughtful, and but you were able to temper that passion from the early days of travel and weave that into a plan, which yeah. then produced um, this business that is now profitable and, and successful. So yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of good information there for our listeners here today. Um, I want to shift the gears a little bit. You mentioned the B Corp you set up, um, the, the B Corporation, which is focused on public benefit. Um, that seems like a bit of a pivot from you know the business focused area. So can you share a little bit about what drove you to become a B Corp and what 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 kind of that means for you and and your employees, but also for your for your people you work with? Yeah, you know when I I started, I thought about it. And actually, I'm a huge fan of uh, uh, Simon Sinek. He's written a book called Start with Why. That's a great book for every entrepreneur. You should read it. Uh, Start with Why. He wrote another one then. I'd say that's, I give that an A plus. The second one, I give an A minus, the infinite game. And he basically talks a lot about, you know, like so many people spend their life fighting with these finite battles. It's like, it's it's a mere yes or no, but like, how do we get involved in doing stuff that lasts and building stuff that is sort of infinite and will go beyond us? And I, I started thinking, I'm like, you know, I'm in an industry that's infinite. Disasters are infinite. They're going to happen, right? And by the way, just to clarify and define something, 
you know, natural hazards exist. Hurricanes exist. You know, floods exist. That's not a disaster. The disaster is the social and economic impacts those natural hazards have on our lives. And so mm -hmm. when you think about it deeply, you realize these hazards have always been there. Literally, you can go back to biblical times. People talk about floods of biblical proportions. Noah to like, you know, all sorts of uh, you know, events of the last four years that have been unprecedented where billions and now trillions of uh, dollars in, in economies have been lost uh, and, and impacts are just absolutely astronomical, not even fully measured yet with the COVID scenario, plus all the wildfires in California and Oregon and, and, and hurricanes of this last season. We still deal with Hurricane Maria from Puerto Rico. You know, I, I think I think when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, the very fact that humanity hasn't learned yet how to uh, mitigate the impacts of disasters and, and reduce risk. We're, we're, we, we often are um, there's hubris involved. There's um, there's psychological barriers to preparedness. I don't need to do it. I don't believe it's going to happen. It'll never happen to me. You know, there's all sorts of barriers to, you know, uh, people actually preparing or just sh uh, scarcity, the law of scarcity. I've only got so much money in my check. You're asking me to spend a dollar in preparedness when I'm literally trying to put food on the table for my wife and my kids. I, I don't have another dollar to spare. So there's all sorts of things at play there. But I realize this is an infinite game. And and I think there's an infinite um, game on the flip side, which is disrupting the impact of disasters. Um, I, I think, I think that if we know that these things are going to happen, what can we do about it to change the narrative, flip the script, and help empower people and put them in a position where they can be resilient and withstand and, you know, not lose family members, not not uh, lose their, their life savings and households, uh, and, and not, you know, literally think about all the hours you spend this week at work and imagine that being gone in a moment. There's a lot of people who've never experienced that in the world, but those who have would, would trade it for in a, in a hot second. And so when I think about the shift to a benefit corporation, I'm like, you know, our work is really about benefiting the public. We want everybody, no matter your background, your, your age, your demographic situation, income levels, race, gender, whatever, religion, it doesn't matter. We are about reducing suffering in the world and we are about helping people. And, and that is very much, I'm like, you know, and I looked at the companies that are out there that also um, are, are, B Corps and, and benefit corporations, and they've made commitments to the public like, hey, we're in business not just to make a dollar. We actually care and want to make a difference. So, it, so, so to me, as a guy who had a business degree and a nonprofit management background as well, I thought it's the best fusion of the both <laughs> where I'm a, I'm a corporation. I, you know, we, have, we are a business, but it's ultimately a missional organization, and it sends a signal to the community. You look at the old days, like 100 years ago. You know, uh, companies like Ford and, you know, and, and Sears, you know, they had they were committed to people, you know, now, you know, in the 80s, you know, airlines and all these other large companies. Dell is a great example, a horrible example, actually, of just slashing and burning to to play to the bottom line of stakeholders, stockholders. And so you cut 10,000 employees, you jack up the stock price, but then you lose your core capability that made you great in the first place. And so Dell tanks because they have no customer service like they used to because in the 80s they cut that. Well. I'm not going to be that type of corporation. I, to me, public benefit is about we're committed and we care. We're moved by compassion. We care about our people. It, it's, it's as much a way of operating in the world. Benefit corporations are just fancy hippie talk for the way businesses were supposed to be built and the reasons why they exist and should have been running anyways. But we've, mm -hmm. we've so um, capitalized on just 
stock prices and, and making money, the finite game, how much money can I make this quarter? And we cut off our nose to spite our, spite our face. And so basically, this, this for us is very much, it's an ethos. It's about who we are. It's about our mission. It's about our way of operating in the world. It's about what we want to achieve with this company. Uh, and it's about the ultimate outcomes and impacts that we hope to have. Absolutely. I love that passion. There's also another great book called Super Capitalism for those that haven't read it that kind of maps that strategy or that change over time that's happened to business that Joel mentioned as well. So Joel, you've, you've had some pretty great stories. I'd love to dig into some of those. Can you share a little bit what it was like for the most recent disaster you worked on for COVID, for example, and how you worked with the White House and other stakeholders to kind of think about not just the response to the medical side, but the economic impact? Yeah, sure. So um, emergency managers are not trained economists. Emergency managers and economists are not trained emergency managers. Um, in, in the industry that I spend a lot of time supporting, emergency management, um, I've been working for a number of years on helping people to understand that billions of dollars, capital B, gets spent all over the country to respond to and recover from disasters. And those dollars, where do they go? Building new infrastructure, building new community programs, mitigating losses, but it's all after the fact. And I'm like, you know, there's also in communities economic development organizations that have a vision for developing communities and they attract new investment and companies to locate their headquarters like Amazon. You know, everybody was fighting for work. So Amazon headquarters going to be, please come to my backyard, right? And I'm like, well, what if you took the, the vision of the economic development communities and the dollars that get infused periodically that are disaster recovery dollars and usually limited in scope to what they can be spent on. And what if we tried to sort of cross-pollinate and harmonize these efforts and actually make a difference with this opportune moment? Disasters provide an opportunity. You know, Machiavelli said, don't ever you know, miss the opportunity in chaos, right? Uh, and so I think there's an opportunity in the chaos of a disaster to figure out, could we actually leverage these moments to, I don't know, kick, push, or pivot our way forward. Uh, nice. and, uh, Love that. <laughs> Speaking our language now, Joel. Okay. Yeah, you know, nice can we blur. diversify? So, so I spent I spent a number of years now working, and, and I'm like, okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna try to tackle this big hairy idea? I decided I need to find some big data companies that have economic insights that are unrivaled. And, and I found some and found uh, one in particular I've worked with for a number of years. It's got the best business and industry data. They've come up with a number of um, um, sort of indices and, and ability to uh, understand, you know, uh, consumer demand, uh, business operations, whether they're open or closed. We develop indices to look at hurricane vulnerability for particular businesses. Um, COVID impact indices, and we basically took these data and started assessing and looking at, you know, how can we understand where the economic risk and vulnerability is in a community, and what can we do before a disaster happens to make a community more resilient economically, and what can we do after a disaster to understand how the economy actually works so that when big federal dollars are being pumped in, we aren't screwing things up, but we're actually helping the local economy self-heal and recover. And actually helping, making sure that, you know, the community lifelines, the things everybody relies on every day, power, water, communications, transportation, those are there. The supply chains are working so you can get your orders from Amazon. So, you know, back in March when COVID happened, 
uh, and in supporting efforts with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, they recently had stood up an office of business, industry, and infrastructure integration. And through working with them and, and Dunn & Bradstreet, which is a 175-year-old company uh, that, that looked, has a, it's a data company, we basically began to look at and assess the economic impacts of COVID. And so everybody was focused on the health impacts, and that's a huge component. And there was this big tension, if you remember, like what's more important, health or the economy? That's sort of still there, right? To me, it's it's, it's not a zero-sum game. They both matter, <laughs> right? Like people need to be alive so they can be working. People need to be, have a job so we can stay alive and stay healthy, physically, mentally, everything, right? It, it all needs to be working together. Um, the initial response was typical in that we reverted to, hey, let's let's look at the health stuff. You know, life safety always comes first, but we immediately need to quickly look at and think about economic security. And so we began to conduct assessments and understand and predict, you know, uh, where the impacts were going to be and, and try to help and shape and, and uh, provide advice to senior uh, leaders in the country to inform how they're how they're going about it and how we're going to also reopen industries and provide personal protective equipment to um, workers that need it you know in industries that you know we can't afford to not have people showing up to and you know when you look at it we found some interesting stats you know um, uh, I, 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 I think I'm I think four and five uh, blacks were not able to re uh, work remotely and five and six Hispanics were not in jobs that allowed them to work remotely so this whole idea of Hey, COVID happens, just quarantine, remote work. That works for um, uh, rich people and for more, more white people than any other demographic, but it didn't work and doesn't work for minorities. And so how do we make sure that we're coming with policies and response policies that are sensitized to um, these uh, inequities and, and the reality that the people in these demographics are working in jobs that require in-person, so we need to find a way to get them back to work in a safe and responsible way. Right. So we're not ignoring the health guidance, uh, but we're also not ignoring the economic realities. And so I, I'd say this is an emergent practice. This is just an anecdote of an emergent practice globally where we need to. And, and now, actually, globally, the start, State Department is looking at um, uh, they've got a challenge they put out how to mitigate the secondary economic impacts of COVID. Everybody's focused on the economy, um, you know, trying to understand what to do about it. And the economy lags. Uh, and so having really important, really good data, that's the most current. Uh, is important. And unfortunately, government sources are often two, three years old. Uh, you know, the best stuff you get is quarterly, but we're able to get daily insights into uh, key economic signals that can tell us and help us to understand what's going on in certain industries, market segments, and help make a better decision, but better policy decisions and ultimately better decisions about where to spend um, uh, precious disaster recovery resources. I like it. <clears throat> I like it. Well, as we come to a close here for our uh, interview today, um, I want to point out a couple of things to the readers that you mentioned today, Joel, very quotable moments, which I think were some good nuggets. Uh, one of the best. Of course, pivot. The, that, was, that was one of your favorite that, quotes, I mean, right? that, You can't go <laughs> wrong. That, that one is definitely one. trademarked. Hashtag best quote ever. I'll, you <laughs> but, can send me the royalty check later. <laughs> <laughs> such a businessman. Always, always looking for an angle. Exactly. So, uh, now, one of the quotes that actually relates to probably to your industry, and that is planning ahead, but, you know, plan a business uh, before you start a business. I think that's that's kind of one of the good takeaways there is think it through. You know, ideas are great. You need to jump on them because there is a first mover advantage for a lot of people out there. But um, starting a business starts before you start a business, I think, is what you said, which I think is a great quote. And the other one is just 
give yourself a minute sometimes before you launch into something. Have a little bit of pre-thought into it. Give yourself a couple deep breaths before you jump. Because, you know, maybe other people have, you know, four kids before they start a business. And that's a scary thing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I appreciate your time today. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to leave you guys with one one thought here. You know, as we, we uh, look to kish, pu- kick, push, and pivot the industry that I'm involved with and also kick, push, and pivot the attitudes and perceptions and culture that is not prepared to a prepared culture. Uh, we've, we've created and launched uh, a platform to prepare humanity, and it's called Planet Ready. And we're, we've got free trainings and exercises for all types of hazards. Uh, in, and, uh, and, and as of this podcast, you'll be able to, based on any location in the world, log in, understand your risk and vulnerabilities in priority order, and take steps to reduce your risk by participating in some of these freely available trainings and exercises. It's a reflection and part of our commitment to be a public benefit corporation to prepare as many people as possible. So join tens of thousands of people all over the world. Uh, who've already participating uh, in, in uh, Planet Ready trainings and exercises. And, and if you want to know more about it, you feel free to contact us. But uh, check out planetready.com uh, when you get a free moment and, uh, and get prepared. Very cool. Hey, Joel, real quick, what's your favorite place you traveled to? Oh, man, everybody asks me that. I mean, it depends on the time of day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love Africa. I love Asia. <laughs> Those are continents. I was in New Zealand last year. That was pretty okay. great. My grandmother came over on a boat from New Zealand uh, awesome. on a three-week journey. So that was pretty cool going there. Honestly, I, I love this great earth. There are so many wonderful places. And I actually love um, that I've had the chance to go to over 50 countries uh, and interact with people, literally all sorts of cultures and, and languages that I never thought I'd ever meet before. So uh, I don't have a favorite uh, per se, but uh, uh, I don't home, home. Home is my favorite. Mm. Maryland. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. so. Good move, especially since your wife is going to be listening to this podcast and she's exactly. holding, holding back the floor. I love it at home, kids. baby. Yeah. I love it at home. <laughs> <laughs> You're my everything. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joel. Pleasure to have you as always. Thanks, Pete and Alex for uh, the chance to talk with you all. And thank you all for listening. Awesome. Thanks guys. Catch us on our next episode. Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen.